On this episode of Of Mechs and Men, Justin goes full frontal in prime time. Patrick bets the farm. Yorinaga calls the bluff. And by the end, Dan's not the only Allard who gets taken for a ride. This is Of Mechs and Men, a Battletech book club. I am Kanan Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent. Brent is me. And Aaron. It's me, Aaron. How we doing, boys? Well, I haven't taken any drinks from any strange Capellan men, so I'm literally doing okay. Well, that's good, because this week, we're working our way through chapters 55 through the end of the book as we continue on. The book we've been reading. Warrior On Guard by Michael A. Stackpole. Let's get into it. Chapter 55. We return to... The match between Justin Jiang and Philip Capet, remember, in Ishiyama. And Justin's right where we left him. He's trapped on that ledge. There was a fire starter and an urban mech had just walked out on him. Capet was across the way. He was in that crevasse. He's not sweating it, though. Chapter starts, and he's like, all right, these dudes are here. That's cool. What is it? He radios Capet, and he's like, you're still no tactician. Haha. <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> cackling. He's like completely jokerified at this point. It's funny because instead of doing anything like shooting them or you're like, oh no, what's going to happen? He just walks off the edge. Like that's his plan. He's like, ha ha, you suck Capet. He just walks off the edge. And of course, it's so funny. He's got that big old rifleman, right? So it's like sliding down the incline. He like, you know, because there's like this incline. It's like this crevasse. So I guess he's just like, he'll just take his chances. But he's like, oh, he's like in the cockpit getting jostled around. You know what I mean? It's like it's it's terrible. You get the shot of the it's grinding the back armor off. It's like you see the little flex like sparks like it's shredding the armor as he's like sliding down. He's got to fight it to maintain balance because he's like he he almost falls over. Eventually, yeah, he there is a bottom. He smashes into the bottom like feet first and gets like flung around the cockpit. And like all of his alarms are going off, read, read, read. his cockpits, it's all smoking. It gets messed up. He makes it though. He makes it down to the bottom. So it works out. <laughs> I would like to know what Capet was thinking when he saw this. The comm channel opens up and Justin just yells over, you're still no tactician, Capet. And then just watches Justin just plummet into the bottom of Ishiyama there. And I could just imagine Capet's just standing there just blown away. Oh, he didn't consider it. He's like, oh, he could just yeah. jump off the edge. And he didn't even know what Justin was bringing, though. I guess he scouted him out earlier in the match and then bumped off. But I was like, that would be a bad thing if he had jump jets. You wouldn't want to ambush him there. He could just jump jet away, right? That's very true. He did encounter him earlier, and then Capet dipped. So that's probably he probably called his boys, and he was like, oh, he's in a rifleman. Let's like get him in the crevasse or something. I mean, so 
this scene, him moving down there, it actually makes some sense, right? The rifleman is one of those mechs that it can move its arms. It has a high range of movement. Don't forget that the rifleman is primarily designed as a anti-air mech. So aiming those big old arms upwards is uh, no problem. And I imagine that that's kind of Justin's thinking here is that they're going to either have to come down into this crevice with him, or he's going to be able to go up there and shoot them. And they're only probably going to be able to aim with some of the weapons on their arms and stuff with any kind of efficiency. That's a good point. They could have chosen a better ambush spot. Honestly. Yeah, this is kind of their bad. <laughs> they can't even ambush him right. It's <laughs> like, oh, we didn't think he just walked off. Dang. All right. When I read through it, I did, for no good reason, give Capet the benefit of the doubt here and thought that he probably set this ambush up for Yen Lo Wang, which the Centurion with the AC-20 across a large area would be outgunned by the rifleman at that point just due to range. That's a very good point. Capet also isn't good enough to adapt to that plan if... (laughs) If the legend killer showed up. So he just kind of stood there. You say that, but the fire starters kind of in the same spot though, right? The urban mechs got that AC 10 up top to start spitting fire at, uh, in this case, in your thesis here, shooting at Yen Lo Wang. But the fire starter still, if the AC 20 couldn't hit or couldn't hit effectively, neither can the medium lasers on the uh, fire starter. So then the fire starter starts to make a little less sense. I just assume Capet didn't know anybody else with mechs. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I wonder if these pilots are detailed anywhere. Who are these guys in this fire starter, in this urban mech? I wonder. I don't think it names them in the book. I wonder if that's, um, hmm, advice at heat.management. <laughs> Do you think these are some poor low-tier fighters he went and recruited just like he tried with Dell? And stuff in like Spanner in the works, you know what I mean? You think that these might just be some goons who just kind of got like muscled into it, maybe. I don't know. Who are these guys? I wonder. <laughs> oh, I did want to say after the last episode, I went and looked at the art for the new Firestarter, and I gotta say, it looks awesome. I wanted to shout that out. I was like, oh, this looks really <laughs> cool though. I really like the new yeah. the one that's coming out. I I think the design is sweet. I was like, oh, the Firestarter is really cool now. I was kind of down on it. You know what? I'm chill with it now. I like it. I mean, just the new art in general. Phenomenal. Yeah. I do like we get another little like insight into kind of the in-universe nomenclature here. When Justin sees the urban mech as a hail of autocannon fire sweeps the valley floor behind him, he like comments on the urban mech's autocannon and we learn and this is how we've determined that it's a an ac10 versus yeah. like an ac20 he's got a 10 shot burst autocannon as opposed to the five shot pop guns yeah. our rifleman carry. pop guns yeah he says pop guns uh, that's true <laughs> if we superimpose this with what we've learned from the warrior trilogy with like the cassettes with the cassette system the weapon systems are firing these bursts they fire the whole cassette and then the cassette either extracts at least in these early novels oh yeah i like the cassette system i always think it's cool when they talk about like racking a fresh cassette up in the racks you know you're like yeah dude (laughs) cassettes so it's funny because he jumps down there and you're like all right is he gonna stalk them through the 
darkness did he is he going to draw them down here and like stalk them and one by one anyway so immediately he looks up and the fire starter is just descending on jump jets right justin slides down hits the bottom he looks up and the dude's like coming in and you're like okay and so he just he points the guns up and just lasers the fire starter straight from (laughs) under it and it burns straight through the armor he like gets it between the legs and it explodes the fuel cells in one hit. If you look at both the old and new art, you'll see that there's those canisters lining the yeah. left and right torso and like kind of around the arms. Yeah. So it looks like he uh, nailed one of those and uh, things go bad for this fire starter real fast. <laughs> it isn't the first time since we've been doing the show that a mech gets introduced for the first time and then gets blown up instantly. It's actually like pretty common now. <laughs> it's a, it's a, but uh, again, I'm like, this makes sense as to why he jumped down here with this rifleman, right? Is that fire starter jump jetting down, it really didn't have anything it could send back at Justin while it's descending, except for maybe the weapons on its arms. That's once it gets in range with those flamers, which we don't actually get like a distance on this cavern, but I imagine it didn't get in range before it uh, met its untimely demise it explodes dude like in midair like little chunks of fire starting to go everywhere it's crazy it's just (laughs) so funny because it's like oh how's he gonna get out of this one and it's just like one hit boom and it's just like (laughs) and the fire starter explodes it's so cool half of capet's trap is gone legend killer is so strong oh and i like after he kills the fire starter, his diagnostic thing shows him that his left knee joint got froze up. He says it looks like a chunk of ferrocrete got stuck in the knee joint. It's all jammed up. He can't walk good with with like the left leg. He's like, oh man, this is going to be an issue. And you're like, oh, this is probably, this is like a real complication to this fight, right? He's not going to be able to move well. So when he like faces off with Capet, it's going to add difficulty. And he's like, oh man, I wish the rifleman doesn't have hands. No. <laughs> Yeah, the gun barrels don't quite le- reach down there. He's like, I could pull it out, <laughs> but I don't have any hands. <laughs> the rifleman isn't exactly Sonic the Hedgehog in the first place. So Justin kind of limps off into this little tunnel entrance down there. There's a tunnel he can go into. And I think we see the urban mech is coming down now. So Justin, he like goes into this tunnel, right? And he keeps moving. Eventually, the urban mech catches up and like opens fire on him. They have this little fight in this little tunnel. They're trying to get his back armor. Justin thinks, oh, they know my back's probably messed up. They're, tr- they're trying to pinch me. They're trying to get in behind me. I got to keep moving. I got to flip it. Here's why this piece of rubbish had to uh, get into the joint of the uh, rifleman. We, we find out right here because the urban mech has to catch up and there was no chance otherwise. <laughs> He's very brave. I don't know. I think if you put it on its side, it'd roll down that hill pretty quick. We're very proud of him. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you might not have an AC-10 at the end of it, though. <laughs> you might not have a pilot. <laughs> so Urban Mech comes down on jump jets. Justin, like, steps out of the little alcove where he's hiding, and he just, he opens up on a dude. He unleashes an alpha strike. Another one. All the triggers. You know, sweating. It's hot. He's right? melting in there. That's not sweating. Okay. That's oh, he's real hot. Yeah, it's funny. He rips into him though. 
And does he hold on? I'm trying to like, does the urban mech even get off a shot? I don't think it hits him. It shot on the way down. And it's funny because it completely missed and it said the only thing it hit was the remains of the fire starter. And it says something funny like the garbage that remained of the fire something. Yeah. It was something clever. Yeah. He does this alpha strike and then the text says this. One light spear hit the autocannon magazine and detonated yeah. the first of the cassette yeah, explosive shells waiting to be fed into the Urban Mech's Imperiator B autocannon. When that shell burst... It sewed white-hot slivers of metal throughout the magazine. So, yeah, the Urban Mech had an ammunition explosion, which is... Uh, Ammo Well, it's explosion. never good. <laughs> Could you do this? Could you, with a rifleman in one alpha strike, like, critical? What happened here? So, there are eight pips of armor in the right torso, um, but, it's, but the ammo's in the torso, which means this is up for grabs for a through armor critical in the base game rules. You don't even need to be using special rules like floating criticals. So with one through armor critical, which sounds like what we got here because we get this like spear of light of the laser beam like burst through and tap the autocannon ammo, which it only has one ton of. One ton's enough. One ton's enough. So yes, the answer to your question, Kanan, is yes, this is definitely possible in more ways than one. It's a good roll, though, right? Yes. The dice were hot. Justin's dice <laughs> are like on fire right now. He's This is infuriating. <laughs> it says the whole top half of the mech snapped open like the lid on the jack-in-a-box. The urban mech like pops open and like explodes. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, man. The, it, so both dudes... Right. It's like, okay, so these two mechs, these two light mechs pull up and they're like, ah, oh, we ambushed them. And Justin, like, one hits both of both them. They're of them. gone. They're oh, off the it's board. It's insane. Immediately. It's so funny. Capet's ringers. And now we're still at a stand up fight. And they didn't do any damage to Justin. Justin did all this damage to himself. Yes, exactly. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, it was so ineffective. He crushed them. Not only that, dude, but it turns out that the explosion of the urban mech, the shockwave or whatever, like fixed the knee joint. It knocked the <laughs> debris out of the knee joint. He can walk fine now. Isn't that great? I'm like, what? what's going on? What is this? I'm telling you, this was so that it was believable that the urban mech could catch the rifleman. <laughs> that's the only reason this happened and it was like a nice little bit of narrative tension and for those of us that kind of have a working knowledge of the board game it's like oh the urban mech could catch the rifleman uh in this situation <laughs> <laughs> so me joins fixed it's working good we're moving justin keeps running the legend killer through these tunnels remember it's this labyrinthine tunnel complex he's looking for capet Right. He does, though. I like he's running real fast and he tells himself, whoa, buddy, you know, slow down. Let's not get careless here. All right. We get that. He slows down and he's like thinking, how do we get him to come out? You know, how do I play with them? And he gets on the radio. Come out, Capet. Stop hiding. And Capet claims that he is not hiding. And he is, in fact, just waiting for, he says, he anxiously awaits his arrival. But Justin is very sorry that he is late, but he was busy destroying his goons. Right. He's like, sorry, I just obliterated your boys, though. This is where Capet tells him, ah, I warned him that those Capellans were sneaky. And I'm like, well, it wasn't really 
that he did anything particularly sneaky, right? That's not really what occurred here. He just shot those guys. So anyway, but Justin's like, yeah, we are sneaky. Capellans, it's cool. I'm coming for you, Capet. And so here we go. We have this. Now they're stalking each other, right? Through this. Justin's stalking Capet through this tunnel complex. Justin never misses an opportunity to be cool. So this is it, man. Think about what it took to get here. We got Justin Jiang in the Legend Killer, okay? And he's stalking Philip Capet in his riflemen through Ishiyama, the Karita arena. How cool is this? Here we are. He's in the Legend Killer. And you're like, oh yeah, he's going to get him though. At this point, you're like, it's (laughs) over. Capet, it's done. We're finally getting the one-on-one fight that we've worked up to all book. I know. This has been coming for a long time. I mean, kind of. Capet's still just hiding. He is just hiding. He's being a bit of a coward here. (laughs) Now, normally I wouldn't say something like this. An ambush, especially a near ambush, is almost always a good tactic. But this is a Solaris match. The reality is is that Capet, he knows Justin's coming for him. He knows Justin's better than him. And he knows that if Justin can get to him, he's going to kill him. Yeah, I feel like it's cutting back and forth from shots. When you cut to Capet's face, he's like sitting still in his cockpit, right? You can see he's not moving. Yeah. And then you're cutting back to Justin and he's like moving the legend killer, like checking corners as they're having their dialogue. I told him Capellans were sneaky or whatever. You don't get a good look at it. You almost see like Justin's silhouette turns a corner and you see him dip into this like narrow tunnel right? And you see it's clearly, it tapers. As it goes, it starts to taper. You can't fit a rifleman through the tunnel and uh, he can't go any further. And you're like, oh no. And of course, this is where Philip Capet steps his rifleman out and he blocks the tunnel entrance. And you're like, oh (laughs) no, he has Justin trapped in this little tunnel. Is this checkmate? Right before Capet steps in, Justin has that thought to himself, like, this tunnel's too narrow that I can't even turn the rifleman around. He can't even turn it. He's stuck. It's checkmate, right? Capet, he's like, he says, it's all over, Justin's young. Good riddance. We watch the AC rounds and the lasers travel down the tunnel, and they hit, they splash damage across the front of the legend killer. And in the laser light, we see illuminated the ghost in the crosshairs painted on the front. And Justin says, that's right, Philip. I march legend killer into this little trap backwards. And you're like, oh, he walked <laughs> it in backwards, dude. He anticipated the trap, right? Justin was like, oh, he's going to trap me here. He called it. And so he backed it in because his back armor was weak, but his front armor isn't right. His front armor was fresh. And so he knew he could take a hit. I feel like you see it from Philip's perspective, right? From his cockpit. And he like shoots the lasers in like the laser light. You get a shot of the insignia and he's like, no. And he's like, that's right, Philip. Like Justin is like cackling. Like, like, I got it backwards. He says, what is he? He says, just like a treacherous capellan to pull that trick, eh? And so like a stupid fed rat to fall for it. <laughs> Man, Capet is 0 for 2 with traps in this match. Well, the first one was less of a trap. It was like a far ambush with the wrong kind of mechs and the wrong kind of terrain. He missed with that one. 
And then this one's on Justin. Justin called this one. Justin's so hype. He's like shaking. He's like, <laughs> he got smashed though, because he did get, he did eat an alpha strike from a rifleman. So there's a little warning. It's like, eat, eat, eat. like lights are going off and he's just like, ah, and you see, he pulls the crosshairs up and he gets the target lock and he turns on the radio. He says, Philip, in your last moment, try not to dwell on the thought of failure. And he hits the <laughs> alpha strike and he just crushes him, dude. You see the large laser wash over the cockpit medium laser follow-up right gets a little splash with the medium softens it up so hits it with the large then the medium then pounds an auto cannon round straight through the cockpit dude blows capet all over the walls like one yeah he's done all he's three over. straight to the dome yeah straight cockpit penetration with the ac round and it's over the rifleman hits the ground so falls the prince's champion can his masters <laughs> be far behind that's it. He's done. He's done. We He killed him. <laughs> he killed Capet. He shot He's him dead. in the cockpit. If you're like, I wonder what's going to happen to Capet, Justin like destroys his cockpit with an autocannon round from the Legend Killer. That's what happened. And this is like a championship game too, right? I mean, Justin, <laughs> he's number one. This is the Super Bowl. This is a dang, this is a title fight. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's a champion. Which is funny because Capet had already lost likely on the technicality yeah that's true so uh that's it the thing i love the most here is this transition it's just can his masters fall be far behind and then it's just boom justin stares at himself in the glass yeah the gold and black silk robe delivered to his rock like we're just we're in his locker room post fight yeah we do it jump cut to the locker room yeah, he's in a gold and black silk robe with tigers on the breast. Dude, a tiger around the midsection. It's sick. He's got this sick robe. It's true. And it felt comfortable. It's awesome, okay? I'm going to have to get me one. The fit's solid. He's got a little card, and he's reading it. It says, your actions bring honor to us all. That's his buddy now. Who would have thought? Sin Shang, dude. That's our boy. They're like besties. <laughs> And you're like, oh, yeah, that's that dude from remember at the very beginning with like Gray Noten goes into the club and it's like, oh, Shang's waiting for you. And he goes in there and he talks to him. He was the one that paid Gray Noten to blow off Justin's arm. That's right. That's where Gray Noten refuses the drink that yeah. Ten Shang orders for him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I bring this up for relevance later. And he orders the yeah, he orders the Timbiki Dark instead. Yep. Instead. And then the doesn't drink that's right. it. Keep that in mind. So... He leaves the locker room. There's two guys out here. There's two guys waiting outside the locker room. And this is some goons. They've been sent to get him, right? I assumed it was the two kids that were watching Grey Doton's car. Yeah, totally. Totally. Absolutely. I thought so, too. You're right. In my head, they're like the same characters. In my head, they were also, I assigned the same dudes. You're right. Yeah. Me too. And uh, yeah, so they're like, hey, you know, we got to take you uh, a friend, they say. So it's cool. We learn that they take them through the tunnels. There's, it says there's a honeycombing series of tunnels. Like, well, I guess they're still under the arena, right? It's very cool. You get this shot of him, like, I feel like you like get a cool one shot of him, like following them through all these tunnels and stuff. And they come out and you're in there like, oh, and they're just outside of a building and there's like a car there. And oh yeah, because they just come out like into an alley. He like goes through all these tunnels and stuff. And, you know, I feel like they know the way and they're like, you know, turn left, turn right. It's like very confusing. And then like, boom, they open this door and they're in like an alley. And there's like Sen Shang's car sitting there. And it's like, oh, cool. 
I like that it parallels Sin Shang has taken the place of Grey Noten. And that's what it feels like in this scene. It's like, oh, there's been a changing of the guard. Yeah, dude. Friendship ended with Grey Noten. <laughs> Friendship started with <laughs> Sin Shang. But yeah, it's cool. This is a cool scene, dude. We got a rain slick alley. We got the car sitting there, you know, raindrops pattering on the roof. Justin slides in. He's got the robe on. Uh, yeah, Sin Shang is in here. He pops a bottle. He's congratulating him. Congratulations, Justin. I'm most proud of your efforts. I dare say that sentiment is shared by everyone in Cathay. And you're like, oh, cool. They're popping bottles. Justin uh, thanks him for the robe, the nice robe. He says that it reminds him of his mother's family crest. And Sean, of course, is like, yes, I know. Who do you think I am? Come on. Yeah, that's why I chose it. <laughs> that's that's why it's there. Come on. Yeah, who do you, come on. <laughs> uh, come on. And then we have an important note here. Shang carefully poured wine into two glasses then settled the bottle into a ice-filled bucket built into the bar opposite their seats. As you said, they're drinking. Sen Shang pours them both a drink. He does. Yeah. It's like a very expensive vintage or whatever, right? He's got the nice, he's got the nice alcohol. A fine vintage, yes. if you will. <laughs> <laughs> Justin asks Sen, what else do you know about me? And Sen tells him that, well, as a member of the Maskrovka, he knows all there is to know about him. I like he talks about the report of his operations on Spica. Remember, <laughs> yeah. Justin's mentioned Spica. This was he won a medal. This was an operation he took part in. It's funny, though. Shang mentions that the Maskrovka report like underrated him. He's like, I reread the, the accounts of the battle. It's just funny. He's like, he like adjusts the report to make it more favorable, if you will. It's just funny. It means that whoever wrote the report was like, ah, oh, this guy sucks. <laughs> Justin Allard, that guy sucks. No, don't no, don't worry about him. He like undersold him, right? He didn't give him any credit. He was probably butthurt yeah. about getting his ass kicked by him. Yeah, so Shang fixed it. He adjusted the report. <laughs> yeah, he fixed the file. And it says he's like really cool now, actually. <laughs> that oversight was corrected in yeah. our later reports. It's so funny. <laughs> It's so Maskarovka. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I fixed some paperwork. Justin's like, okay. <laughs> but Shane pulls out this envelope, right? And Justin throws it back. He finishes his drink. And what's this? It's got the seal of the Ministry of Social Education on it. And Justin pops it open. And inside, we got some documents, a host of documents. There's a bunch of stuff in here. We got passports and whatnot. Right, he has a passport for Thomas Yuan. You see, oh, that he has a new they gave him an ID, ID papers, credit chips, a full transcript of an education. It's a fake identity, right? <laughs> this is so comical to me considering what happens literally seconds later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is funny. Yeah, Shang's like, <laughs> I fixed your report and then hands him like a like a fake identity, like all the necessary paperwork with a full history <laughs> and everything. Money. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, what? I don't, Justin literally says that he, he doesn't understand. I don't, I don't understand. And then everything begins to blur, right? He starts to black out and you realize, oh no, the drink was drugged. He may have taken legend killer, but he clearly didn't learn all of Noten's tricks of the trade. No, this is man. Sean got him here. Like it's true. <laughs> he's right. Gray would never. Have, yeah, Justin walks right into it. Dude, they literally laid a trap, and he walked right into it. Admittedly, the trap is is unusual, especially considering the packet he just got. 
it's like, oh, <laughs> look at all these nice things we've given you. He got Maskrovka. This is yeah. so <laughs> Maskrovka. Justin sits down here, <laughs> drinks some poison. Here's some. Here's a fake identity, and now you're about to black out. And he's just like, okay. Within like very quickly, this all occurs in pretty rapid succession. Oh, I like to Justin, you know, he's like, what'd you put in the drink? And Sin tells him that he took a counter agent. The whole bottle was poisoned, of course, but Sin took a counter poison so that he wouldn't be affected. And I'm like, man, got him again. This is so funny. This is what they do. We're left with fear not, son of Quintus Allard. I follow the orders of who believe you much too valuable to kill. So it's not poison. You just got drugged. <laughs> right. That's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I do like in this story arc, though, we've got Justin spending this time on Solaris shedding his Federated Son's history. And then the second he kills Capet, we reach the pinnacle of it. And then he gets full Capelland. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would argue full Capelland, you end up with a knife in your back face down on the concrete. So I don't think he got full Capelland. He got a, a knife of friendship in his back. Yet this is, uh, you know, this is what they do to their friends. I do like the fact that it's like, hey, here's all your identity and everything. And it's like, he's already drugged him. Like he didn't even, he could have just been like, oh, uh, yeah. let me check an email or something for just a minute and just watch him slump over. He's like, oh, let me let me show you all this stuff. I, I moved your file from the just okay to the rad pile, and you're now... You're Thomas. Yeah, and, and now you're Thomas. Yeah. Good night. I do like that we get... Justin goes down swinging, though, and apparently he hits Sen Shang hard enough that Sen's like, man, it wasn't bad, but he was like, he was pretty potent for the amount of drugs that were in him. He's an animal. <laughs> I guess we play these games and we win these prizes. <laughs> it all happened so fast. We were just killing Philip Capet moments ago. Moments ago. And now uh, he's been kidnapped by the Maskrovka, it seems. And wow, that's so funny, though. Aren't people going to be looking for the champion? Aren't there some reporters yeah. somewhere that, you know, there's literally what's good? It's they're like, where did he go? It's like <laughs> this dude just won the title match and he's they're like, Where's Justin Jiang, right? This would be like a news story, though. Like, Justin Jiang oh, yeah. disappears after winning title fight. The number one mech warrior. Knowing Capellans, and then knowing how some of the other inner sphere houses kind of... Well, to, to reference Spanner in the works, they had a Cretan attempt to stand in for a uh, Capellan. Given that, I have a feeling that they're going to have someone. I imagine that uh, that Sen Shang here maybe doesn't have a body double per se, but has someone at some distance will be close enough. Oh yeah, just put some sunglasses on him. Yeah, he's got Fu Tang. Yeah, cut his arm exactly. off. Give him a give him a metal one. He'll look just yeah. the same. Or just needs a long sleeve shirt or like a robe. So yeah, I don't know. That's funny to think about though, because often the champion will then go join a stable. It is funny if, if this uh, prize fighter showed up, rose his way th through the ranks, took the championship, and then just disappeared. Yeah. Who's Kevin Johnson going to talk to? Yeah, nothing. That's it's true. just, where did he go? It was just, remember that guy? And then he's just going to be some weird story. It's like, yeah, one time this dude showed up, took number one, and then he was gone. <laughs> Killed all the rated Federated Sun pilots and then just dipped. He dipped. Don't forget, he won the alcove. 
Yeah, he won the alcove. That's what I'm saying. Yep. There was no, he didn't like, get to celebrate this huge dub. They got bottle service waiting on him at the Valhalla Club. They got bottles chilled, ready to go, ready to party. And Justin's. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Exactly, dude. There's exactly, there was definitely a party for him back at the club, straight <laughs> up. And everyone, he never, he never shows up. Isn't that sad? It breaks your heart. But he did it, dude. He, he did killed it. Philip Capet. Yes, it's over, finally. I do like to think, though, that if this was like a title fight pay-per-view, that you'd be disappointed. <laughs> you'd be sitting there going like, oh, man, they didn't even make it out of the first round. He hit, killed all three of them with one, almost one shot, one volley. Yeah, yeah. To each pilot. He did. It's, he's so effective. Two explosions in a dome. I don't know. The fact that the there were two mechs that weren't supposed to be there probably excited the audience a little bit up until their demise. But yeah, you're right. Then you then they get in this this like tiny hallway right next to each other and <laughs> shoot at each other in like a linear fashion. And then one of them like falls out. Yeah. Yeah. People aren't even they're not even gonna think it's real. Yeah. <laughs> they're gonna be like, oh, it's like it was, it's all scripted. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh yeah, just he killed Philip and like shot those two dudes. It like it didn't even happen, dude. It's like it would. It's gonna be a strange curiosity. Like the taping of this fight, there's gonna be documentaries and like no one ever heard from him ever again. After he some debate whether <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I wonder if that means that there'd be people that still think Capet's alive. Yeah, and that Capet isn't kaput. Yeah, exactly. I I I don't know. I I. I don't mean to get, it's just, when I read this, I got hung up on it. I was like, wait, what about the parties? What about the parade? <laughs> I was like, man, this sucks, though. He could have just kicked it. But <laughs> I mean, I imagine the money is going to, uh, well, I don't know, they're compelling. The state might have just absorbed it. Yeah, he got snatched. Justin gets snatched. He kills Capet and gets snatched. That's what happened. <laughs> but I guess that kind of wraps up that we were jumping back and forth between we got all these plots going on, but... I mean, I don't know. That's uh, that was it. That's kind of the little cap. I mean, I don't know where he's, you know, what's going to happen to him now. But that he did it. He killed Capet. Yep. And the so Solaris Justin arc is over. You're seeing it. You're starting. You're okay. Okay, we're starting to wrap things up here. You know, we're starting to. We're starting. All right. I'm feeling it. I'm excited. Well, that's good though, because I would be concerned if Stackpole wasn't starting to wrap stuff up in these last three chapters. Uh, if he was like, oh, there's a whole new angle on this. Uh, I'd be like, there's not a lot of book left to cover this. Well, hold that thought. And speaking of wrapping things up, and with Justin's arc wrapped up, we'll have to cut back over to the Kellhounds and see how things have ended up for them in the next chapter. Chapter 56. We're back on sticks, and the hour is almost up. Remember, Tarukito, who gave Dan an hour, well, he said, bring us the Archon, designate, or we will kill everyone on the Silver Eagle, right? So we get a scene with Dan and Patrick going over the plan, over the radio, right? Dan's in his mech, and he's talking to Patrick because, as far as Dan knows... The dropship is coming in to rescue Melissa, Andy, and Clovis, right? But 
it's funny, he's talking to Patrick and Patrick tells him, don't worry, just wait for the signal. And Dan asks him, what signal? What are you talking about? We didn't. And Patrick tells him, don't worry, you'll know it. Kel out. And turns off the radio. He says, Kel out. That's cool. And Dan doesn't like this secret plan business. It makes him nervous. So, Dan's been upset about a lot of things. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been a pretty busy day for him being out of the loop. He didn't expect this much swashbuckling, <laughs> right? It's the Kell Hounds. So we're running out of time. And we got Taro Kito is calling now. So we got to talk to him. It's like, oh, man. So Dan picks up the phone and he tries to be so casual. He was like, Shosa, what up? <laughs> hey, what's going on? Tarukito reminds him, uh, Captain Allard, you realize that time is almost up. And it's so funny. Dan, he's so flippant. <laughs> he's doing this whole bit. He gives him the whole, oh, yeah, sorry. You know, we haven't found the Archon designate yet. I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe try Tharkat or, you know, she's usually there. <laughs> Dan's like, if I have to get swashbuckled, I'm going to do some swashbuckling myself. Yeah, he's so funny. He's very disrespectful. And honestly, Tarukito can't believe it, right? These were supposed to be the Kellhounds, though. I thought they were an honorable foe. He says that. He tells Dan that he can't believe what he's saying because he was of the understanding that the Kellhounds were supposed to be better than this, right? <laughs> I thought, you guys have a good reputation. You're just going to let all these people die. And before he can even finish what he is saying, the line is cut off when a nearby panther explodes. And little bits of panther go raining down all around them. And it's raining cat from the explosion, a blinding light. And when the light fades, a victor emerges from the fire (laughs) and it's Patrick. Patrick has arrived in the victor. He said there would be a sign. Yeah. (laughs) He growls over the radio. You're right. Shosa, the Kellhounds would never let these people die. We're here to cut off your retreat. And we get this huge hero moment where Patrick shows up in the victor again. Remember the victor from that like scrimmage match in the forest and they're doing the jump jets over the trees. And uh, this was um, who piloted. This was Sortek was in the victor, wasn't he? Yes. Yes. No. But that's when they fought that awesome, awesome pilot. Oh, awesome yes. Pilot. Yes. Yeah. So more on awesome pilot later. Yeah. Yes. So the victor shows up, dude, and he one-shots another panther with an AC round. He shoots another one. It explodes. It's insane. We get another. <laughs> I can't believe it. Like, literally, they're having a conversation. The dialogue is cut off with the panther explosion. How funny is that? And the Stackpole saved and one for the exploding end. exploding more. I'm like, oh, my God. This is incredible. I'm clapping. <laughs> yeah, Dan can't believe it. He's like, what is he doing? What the hell is he doing? What, what's, what's, what's going on? This is what I'm talking about. No one, t- he's, what, what is it? And so, I mean, he has no, he's like, what do we do? We attack. Kellhounds, hit him hard. He's like, hit him. Let's go. And then we get another Kellhounds Panther devastation montage. Again, I can't believe it. We ran it back and it's like, all right, dude, I know you wanted it one more time. One more time. Let's watch these dudes mess up some Panthers. It's so funny. Dan LRM's a Panther. Lasers the PPC off. Oh, um, but this is where Austin Brand reports that he's got a targeting computer malfunction. Something's wrong with the targeting computer. He's got no read on the victor. 
he can't target it. It doesn't have any, it's not, there's no sensor image, no thermal image. And Dan looks down at his instruments and he realizes he can't see it either. It's like not appearing on any of his sensors or scanners, any of his instrumentation. It's like the, it, nothing's detecting the victor. It's, I, it, he doesn't understand. And he, he's, he's looking, I feel like in slow motion, you see all the, all the Panthers are shooting. The PPCs are all missing. They're just flying past them. It's just all these Panthers are shooting. No one can hit this victor. And Dan, he gets a chill down his spine and he thinks, oh no, it's just like Morgan on Mallory's world. Remember Mallory's world? <laughs> Remember when Morgan was in the Archer? And there was reports that he went invisible. It's the phantom mech ability. He's got a phantom <laughs> mech. And so, I mean, what are you going to do? More on that later. Dan and Fitz are here. Fitz in the catapult, as always. They're dumping LRMs on another panther when Dan notices a warhammer approaching. He sees he's like, oh, they have that warhammer. And he thinks, where have I seen that mech before? I know I've seen this mech before. And, but he just keeps shooting Panthers. But <laughs> again, I think he mentioned this before, right, though. He just takes a moment where, oh man, that Warhammer. I know that Warhammer. But they're, they're still surrounded by Panthers. Knee deep in Panthers. We're still going. Lasker gets lit up. And, oh, and that Crusader, the Crusader kills McWilliams. Now, don't forget that. Yeah, the Crusader smashes her with the missiles. Yeah, he sets off like an internal explosion with the like engine. It has like an engine hit. The Crusader, he kills McWilliams in the Panther, right? She was in a Panther. She gets in a duel with the Crusader and she gets crushed. The Crusader missiles her to death and then just closes in and just yeah, messes her up so bad her engine explodes and she doesn't get away. So I think this is our first Keldhound death so far since the mission started. I think it's getting real. So... Dan tells Fitzhugh to take the Crusader while he works on the Warhammer. I'll take the Warhammer. And he's watching it. And this is where Dan has that moment, right? Where he's thinking, oh, the way it moves, right, dude? It's like I've seen it move like that before. I've seen these moves before. It's so skillful, so graceful. The Warhammer pilot. It couldn't be. And so Dan, he realizes, he calls Patrick on the radio. I don't even know if he... It, he can even talk back, but he tells him, he's like, Patrick, watch out. That's Yuri Naga's Warhammer. It's Yuri Naga's Warhammer, dude. Here we go. And just like how Justin recognized Noten's movements in the Rifleman, Dan also just can see it. It's one of those things that the experience of it stayed with him all that time. It's cool. This is it. The Warhammer's coming in. I like when Dan calls it in you see the victor's head turns and it turns and it looks at the warhammer but it's he keeps shooting panthers with ac rounds he keeps while he's like looking at the warhammer approaching he takes he destroys another panther and he doesn't even he doesn't shoot the warhammer he keeps shooting the panthers and the warhammer pulls up he hits him double ppcs right crushes the victor this is where we remember he had a weak armor plate from that fight when I think it's when the fight with the awesome pilot, when Sortek was in it, it took armor damage and they patched it. So yeah, I just like, it starts cracking. He, he like, it's no joke. The victor is getting messed up. The Warhammer is like crushing him with these PPCs, dude. But the victor doesn't shoot him. He just keeps killing the Panthers, right? 
he explodes multiple Panthers. He's shooting the auto cannons. He's shooting the SRMs. He like lasers the Crusader. The Crusader's over there. He's taking LRMs from Fitzhugh and it's getting crazy. But yeah, Patrick won't shoot. He won't engage the Warhammer. And this is where Dan tries to reposition. He breaks into a run. He's taking missile hits and they're recharged. The Warhammer, he hits the Victor again, double PPCs, melts, the armor's melting. It's gone, right? It's like, uh, oh, I like Dan also hit by a PPC. It is, he loses the right arm. I meant to say that. It does. He loses the right arm here with the PPC hit. So this is cool. It's just like Patrick, right? What is this? It's like he doesn't, he won't engage the Warhammer the whole time though. He just keeps shooting the Panthers. He just keeps killing Panthers and he's just letting the Warhammer uh, hit him. He's not defending himself. When Dan's watching the Warhammer hit the victor, he's noticing that one of the shots had damaged the shielding around the fusion engine. So he's like, it, that's a heat problem. Like that mech is just going to keep heating up. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, And the whole time, Patrick's in there just continuously firing, just aiming at the next Panther on the line. And he's screaming at Patrick, Patrick, no, you have to fight it. What are you doing? While he's, like, fighting, it's just this crazy battle scene, and it appears, I don't know, what's Patrick doing? So... Solo tanking. <laughs> I've seen this. Solo tanking. <laughs> so this is where Dan, he has this cool switch... He snapped the silvery toggle to the left, then punched the round red button glowing to life beneath it. Oh, flip the cover off, right? Of course, so you have to flip the cover off, and then you get the silvery toggle. You get to flick that little silver switch, and then you get to punch a round red button that begins glowing. I was like, how cool is that? I really like this button here. I was like, that's a cool button. <laughs> he initiates the eject sequence, or arms the ejection sequence. Like, he puts it on voice command. Right, he, he turns off the timer. He's like, no, eject on my command. And this is where he's screaming over the radio, no, Patrick. And you look over, Patrick's still just shooting Panthers. And again, this is the third, I think, round. I mean, the Warhammer just shoots the PPCs again. That's all it does. It just stands there and hammers the victor with PPCs. But this is it. He gets the reactor. The chain reaction begins. The ammo starts cooking off. The victor starts exploding. It's over. He gets the kill. Patrick, we see, or should I say, Dan sees Patrick eject, right? At least at the last second, he sees the canopy blow off, but he doesn't get away. He's consumed by the explosion. He doesn't get out of the victor. The Warhammer, Yorinaga destroys the victor, and Patrick doesn't get away. He is consumed, and he's done. It's over. He sacrifices himself. Dan's like, no, and he charges the Warhammer with his jump jets. And right, this is where, this is cool, though, where he takes the Valkyrie and yeah, because they're in like low gravity, right? And he hits the jump jets and he's flying towards the Warhammer and he, he calls the ejection. This is where he activates the ejection. Okay, listen, this is so funny though. <laughs> All right. So he sends the Valkyrie on a collision course with the Warhammer, and then he ejects, but his chair clips on the way out, right? He, like, he doesn't get a clean breakaway. It kind of clips, and Dan goes spinning away in the chair. He's like, whoa! And then we see the Valkyrie smashes into the Warhammer, and its left arm gets hooked between the head and the spotlight. 
Remember the iconic Warhammer spotlight? <laughs> well, you got to yeah. be careful because Valkyries will get their arms hooked in there. You didn't think about that, did you? And that's exactly what happens. And Dan has activated the self-destruct sequence. And so it's the Valkyrie starts exploding and it touches off the LRMs and they drill into the back of the Warhammer. And it's sick, dude. He shoots the Valkyrie. He does the suicide charge with the Valkyrie. He collides the Valkyrie with the Warhammer and he like explodes it. I'm like, oh, that's cool, though. Yeah, this part was wild. I loved yeah. it. It really took a turn from our usual Panther parties that we've been reading through through the book, where this one got very serious very quickly. And this is all taking place in the giant, like, docking cavern, right? Where the you can see in the background the jump ship mm -hmm. while they're fighting. Okay, listen, though. So you see... The Valkyrie, the LRMs go off, they slam into the Warhammer, the Warhammer starts exploding from the inside, and then we see Dan streaking past in the chair, and he's got little gyro jets on the chair, of course they do, so like the little, the little jets straighten him up, so he's like, alright, I'm, I'm good, but it turns, it's like, unfortunately, the mag fields knock him off course again so he's like oh I'm, I'm straight and i'm good no he's not he starts spinning away and dan he slams into the deck and skips along the deck he's like eh, like boom hits it and now he's like skipping while the, oh and as he's like sliding across the deck the jets are still firing so they're like he's like being boosted across the floor just before he the jets slam him straight into a ferrocrete wall Right. And then not only that, remember, it's, it's low gravity. So the jets smash him into the wall and then it rebounds and the jets refire and the chair accelerates straight into the wall again. Why did Stackpole have to do him like this? <laughs> though? Because he wanted the sick ass transition because <laughs> holy shit, this is the best transition in the entire book. <laughs> I agree completely. <laughs> He heard something grind and snap, and then a wave of black pain washed over him and dragged Dan down into unconsciousness. Yeah. He had planned to turn the Valkyrie into a missile. He didn't plan to turn himself into one. No. That's how uh, inertia works, though, right? An <laughs> object in motion whatnot. It's like slapstick, though, in its <laughs> poor Dan. It's kind of, I was like, oh, no. When the chair... When he hits the wall and then it hits, it does it again. I'm like, oh no, not <laughs> when it's like the gyro jets fired again. And he's just like, God, no, no. Can't you imagine? And you just see, you hit the wall again and he just blacks out. Oh no, my poor Dan. Aaron, did you have uh, a fight between two mech warriors who accessed their chi on your bingo card though? Not at all. Uh, I haven't, I haven't read that special pilot ability in the deck yet, so. You didn't have a little bit of space magic in there? <laughs> no, but I'm here for it. I am too. This one gets a bad rap from a lot of fans, but I'm going to be honest with you. I think it's fine. It's not like overblown. Yeah. Well, and I love how when Stackpole shows that the victor also can't be targeted, he uses yeah. that line to really turn the tension in the battle, where before it's just Panthers exploding again. It's our party. We love it. 
it's been all buck. Yeah. And then all of a sudden things got really serious really quick. The Warhammer squaring off, it changes the total tone of everything. And that brings you to the point when Patrick's Victor explodes, you're in the right space to see it happen. Yeah. But that's it for Patrick Kell, though, right? How sad is that? That guy was cool. And he did what he had to do. He's like, it's it is funny though. What he what he had to do was show up in an assault mech and kill as many Panthers as possible in as short of a time as possible. Stackpole set this up, right? He was like, assault mechs are dangerous, but they're not invincible. We got that line earlier during oh, yeah. during that training fight, right? Yeah. Where it was yeah. like, see, if you gang up on the assault mech, it's gonna go down like anything else. Well, and during that same scene, when they do refer to it and they say the thing about an assault mech is everybody on the field is going to start gunning for it. That's right. And I, I agree, Brent. Stackpole set that up and then knocked it out of the park with it, like brought it back. That single line became so important in this battle. It's true. So Kel's out, but Yorinaga's out. I'm going to call that a W. This seems like a dumb. I mean, I don't know. Did we save the... Did they do it? Listen, you're right about the transition here because <laughs> Dan hits the wall, blacks out, hard cut to the field triage scene. I like to, in the movie, I like to think he's like recoiling. And so he like, we come to in the hospital and he's like arching his back. Yeah. Well, it, it, I think when it opens, Dan's doing the classic, let me see him, doctor. You, you got to let me in there. And he's like, no can do. It's like, there's nothing you can do. I don't care. This is a classic. I, I do. I, I wanted to point out we got this is a little field situation. They have these some ropes and sheets hung up between two of the Panthers. They're in the mech bay. And so Dan pushes his way in and we see Patrick is on a cot and Salome and Kat are here as well. Dan comes in and tells Patrick, the doctors are ready for you. They're going to fix you up. We got some doctors here. It's going to be all right. But Patrick tells him that, no. He says, I'm too messed up inside to survive. I can feel it. He is. He's messed up. Uh, He's in like a lot of pain, right? He's really messed up. Patrick is critically injured. This is the end. He's in severe pain. It's very sad. It's made very clear early on in the scene that the time Kel has here is borrowed. Yes. Patrick asks Salome to continue her report, and Salome catches us up on what happened. The Karita forces returned to their jump ships. They retreated. They pulled back. They went back. They got on their drop ships. They went back to the jump ships. They knew they were too far away because of, you know, space travel. It's uh, when they did the math, they wouldn't be able to catch up with them in time. So they had no choice. They returned to their jump ships and... They'll be jumping soon as well. 20 hours. So Salome finishes her report, and this is where Melissa busts in, of course. The curtains blast back, and Melissa comes in the room and falls to her knees in front of the cot. She's holding Patrick's hand. We pan over, and we see Clovis walks in behind her. Andy as well, heavily bandaged. I feel like Andy's the most heavily bandaged, like comically. <laughs> He's like on crutches. Yeah. You know, I don't think it actually, I just saw that when I, I was like, that would be uh, But our boy made it. Andy made it. He did. A fine vintage indeed. Also, but this reminds us that, oh yeah, all three of them are here. They're not yeah. on the dropship. They didn't, they're still here on the, they should have been gone by now. 
that was the whole thing. But then Patrick, you know, we don't know. Dan didn't know. He didn't tell him. He just said, you know, don't worry about it. And so, but now we got Melissa. She's in here at the bedside, tearful, Tears in her farewell eyes. scene. You can't die. Patrick tells her, oh, we can't have the Archon designate crying for a mercenary, can we? <clears throat> we get the... <laughs> We get the piano. We I feel like we get some piano coming in. We get this anime like farewell scene. It's very moving. <laughs> and Melissa, of course, crucially, she reveals to Patrick here that she'll be marrying Hans Davian, right? She tells him, Oh yeah, I want you to be the first to know I'm going to marry him. I'm going to marry Hans Davian. That's and what all this is about. That's yeah, that's what all this is about, Patrick tells her. He's a lucky man. Wish I could be there. You will, Patrick. In spirit, Mel. In spirit. And Patrick tells Dan to tell Morgan that he finally understands. That's what he says. Tell Morgan I understand. Tell him I, I finally understand. Now remember, Morgan is the other Kel. He's on a monastery. Yeah. After his fight with Yorinaga originally on Mallory's world. Exactly. Precisely. He is in exile. It seems like this is going to come up again. Yeah. Not sure, is. but you know, it, it seems like come it's going to come up again. You know, come on. Let's not. I wonder what he means by that. He doesn't have time to explain because this is it. We're in the final moments here. It is sad. He looks up and he says out loud, is it supposed to hurt this much? He's not. Patrick is like legitimately suffering though. It is quite sad, right? This isn't cute. This isn't some, uh, he's in critical condition. Final moments. Oh, but before he dies, he gives command to Salome. The command is yours, Major. So Salome is now the leader of the Kelhounds. That's it. Yeah. Patrick Kell fell into the sleep from which there is no waking. And that's it. Now Patrick Kell is dead. He sacrificed himself for a lot for the Archon designate. He saved them. For his fellow Kelhounds. He's a hero. If you're going to make the move... This is the way to do it. He's a hero. Well, and I love that Stackpole set up the entire Kelhounds arc to have that moment pay off. It isn't like they were distant or not a close-knit group. You have fun with them through the whole novel. Yeah. And then right here at the end, they get a gut punch. I don't know. It's a bit of a haymaker. Yeah. I don't know if it's just a gut punch. Stackpole got me. I get, even reading it this time, I got a little teary-eyed about it. I was like, damn. Remember, Aaron predicted that Andy might die, but it turns out Andy survives. Patrick <laughs> Kell dies. I didn't. I think the first. I think. I think the first time I read this, I don't think I saw this coming. I don't remember thinking. I also remember being like, "Oh man, Patrick dies. Dang. All right." It's interesting because Stackpole sets it up well, but it's kind of like he kind of keeps it in his back pocket. Yeah. It stays out of the forefront long enough for him to pull it off, where you're like, oh, I, you, I'm you, i with you. I didn't expect it either. What about you, Aaron? But no, I mean, it's now after reading it, you can see the breadcrumbs that Stackpole left along the way to show that yeah. it was going to happen Yeah, by referencing Morgan infrequently. Having the Kellhounds be kept alive by Patrick, like rebuilding them and... All the scenes along the way that show, like, to Patrick, this wasn't just like a Merc assignment. Yeah. This was more of a family. And then 
I, I would say the only thing that gave me any indication that it could happen prior to reading this chapter was when they were talking about the mechs on the dropship. And they were saying, yep. like, what do we have? We need the ones with jump jets. Yep. And then they were like, well, the Victor's off because it's the only Victor. keyed in to yep. Patrick. And I was like, well, yes. we're going to see that thing again. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. That is a little bit of foreshadowing there for sure. Very, very subtle. And as sad as I am to see Patrick go, I'm happy Stackpole made this first encounter with the Ginyosha in the Kellhounds. Well, I'm assuming it's the first encounter. <laughs> and... the. The first encounter we're seeing in the novel. We'll yes. say that. Yeah. But he doesn't pull the punch. He makes the Ginyosha as lethal as he set them up to be. It wasn't a no-stakes encounter. It wasn't something that didn't have any consequence where they just both walked away. It took a huge blow to the Kellhounds. I also feel like he's trying to set up this thing where it's like you're supposed to feel like it's almost supposed to feel like there's a bit of like destiny involved here right it's so crazy the events it's one of those things where because we took it step by step to get here but it's like the odds are wild that all of these different people would end up here in the same place at the same time and like intersect in the way that they did i feel like stackpole earned that he wanted this to happen and he wanted it to feel like that and he made that happen, but not because he forced it, but he did the legwork to make that work. Yeah, I agree. No, it was it was a lot. No, the, yeah, there was a lot of setup to get the Kellhounds here required. I mean, we're talking, think all the way back to them originally when we first saw Patrick, they're playing the card game at the officers meeting and they're talking about Jonesy back then and how they're they have some kind of plan to maybe they can you know, even all the way you're like, oh, the, all of this stuff was really, there's so much stuff happened, and they ended up on <laughs> sticks, and they saved Melissa. And I'm like, yeah, man, I buy it. Heck yeah, I love it. If you were like a third party reading the report on this, you would be like, excuse me? <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. I'm just saying, like, the casual observer, we were here in the seat, so we were like, yeah, head nodding, yeah, that happens, okay, that happens. But, like, reading this, like, as, like, as a member of Lick hanging back and like do you know looking at the debriefing report, you're like, wait, what? And the Calhouns just showed up. And why'd they show up? Well, what did we learn? I don't yep. know, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Simon Johnson's gonna have a rough couple of days of paperwork ahead of him. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, you what like the mech fight, like the Calhouns, it's like he couldn't be targeted. There was a white light, like, excuse, what, like, everyone missed him, except for the Warhammer, who you couldn't couldn't be targeted. What? Yep. Like, I'm just saying, this whole thing is going to... Those were all questions I had. Just like Mallory's world. They're going to be experts in intelligence. I imagine all four of the, like, major houses are going to have their intelligence analysts, like, reading... Whatever documents about this they can get their hands on because they're just, this is such a confusing uh, thing to look at from the outside, right? Again, we were along for the ride. <laughs> Shout out to Patrick Kell, though. Cool guy. We're going to celebrate like this is the last day of the universe, and we're the ones who get to turn out the lights when we're done. You know what I mean? But with that, the Kellhounds will have to make sure Patrick's sacrifice wasn't in vain in the next chapter. 
chapter 57. Right away, we noticed that this takes place on Northwind. That's what it says. It's Northwind and it's June 5th. And the chapter opens with that scene of Quintus helping Dan get dressed, right? Dan has a sling on his arm. Oh, he also has that little healing spider electrode that he has. It's like a this little, it does like electrical impulses. It's cool. It's Dan and Quintus and they're getting dressed for something. I don't, I don't know if it says right away, but he's helping him put his jacket on and straighten his uh, shirt up. It's this, it's this cool scene. And while they're getting dressed, they're talking about what happened. It's a uh, economic storytelling. It's what we've come to love here with Stackpole. It's so cinematic, though. This is how you would shoot it. Right. What just happened, they're talking about Patrick's plan. And we learned that what happened was Patrick realized that he couldn't be sure that the dropship would make it up to the jump ship. It wasn't a guarantee, and he didn't want to risk it. So instead of picking them up, Patrick just had them hide, Melissa and Andy and Clovis. He just had them hide inside the facility and had the Mac come in to make like a phantom run to appear. It was a bluff, right? He actually didn't pick anyone up. And then when the Mac came in, that's when he jumped the victor, because remember, the victor was on the Mac. So he jumps the victor off into the docking bay, and that's when he started shooting the Panthers. So it was a diversionary tactic, right? You see, Patrick's whole thing was, we're not getting out of this without, they need me to get in the victor and destroy as many Panthers as I possibly can. I mean, it worked though. Patrick was right. He did what he had to do. I like how they give us this insight into that plan, that Patrick essentially set it up that the dropship is to appear that they're taking everybody up come in and start whittling down the numbers of mechs. Even if it's the Panthers, just make it so the Ginyosha feel like they're just losing mechs and pilots for nothing at this point. It's a lost battle already. So he set it up so they'd on- the only choice they would have would be to pull out without taking any more losses. Yeah. He needed to defeat the Ginyosha in their minds, right? Yeah. Because the reality is it was unlikely that they would defeat them on the battlefield straight up. They had to make it not worth their while, like you said, that they had already failed in their objective. He was right, as always. Oh, I wanted to talk about this jacket, though. Dan's wearing the (laughs) Kellhound's dress jacket. This jacket is crazy. There's like a cut of fabric. It's like the way the breast comes over, it forms the dog's head Kellhound's logo, right? That's what it says. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking like this, it has this double breast. It comes over. It has this like it's cut into a design. Like with like the ears come up and touch the shoulders and it's crazy. You know, it's like black and red. He's got the captain. He's got this sick dress jacket. It did make me want one. So yeah, there's an image of it actually. And you're right. It is this kind of the double breasted parts are kind of forming the like brows of the uh, wolf's head into (laughs) kind of, it's kind of this approximation of like the Kellhound logo. Yeah. Um, Also, uh, Rocking the cloak, the black, the black cloak with the uh, red yeah, underlining. The yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll have to post an image in the uh, Discord, and uh, you guys can rate this uh, Callhound fit. So, how do you, how do we feel? What's the OMAM rating for this uh, dress uniform? We've had two so far. We've had the Grayson. Like I threw this together from a surplus store when I go to meetings, and then we've gotten, we've got the Callhound's dress uniform. Well. <laughs> 
in that face-off between it, the Kellhounds take it hands down for me. I'd ship it. Wait, didn't Grayson had the beret, though? Are you talking about when he had the beret? Yeah, yeah, the, his, no, uh, yeah. his his dress uniform, in yeah, quotation marks. Yeah, no, that marks. was cool. No, uh, yeah, I would wear that, honestly. I'm also... Yeah. I, uh, I'm with Kanan on this one. While I respect the Kellhound uh, dress fit... I'm sorry, Charles Gideon, but I'm going to have to go with our boy Grayson's. The beret gets me every time. It's okay to be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Quintus asks Dan if he's sure that that was Yorinaga, because not even Quintus has a record of the Ginyosha. He's never heard of it. Not even Quintus, dude. This thing is top secret. And if Quintus doesn't know, no one knows. You know what I mean? So, but Dan swears that it was Yorinaga. Again, he says it's because of the way it moved. He swears that once you see a mech warrior like that operate their machine with such grace and proficiency that it makes a mark, that it is, it is so noticeable when a mech warrior is so skilled that uh, they can operate their machine almost like an extension of their body type of a situation. Uh, that's what he claims. Dan says he was sure of it when, when he saw the Warhammer moving. When he saw how the pilot was moving, that's what he says. Yeah. And we learned that after Yorinaga ejected, and so, yes, he did eject. He got away, of course. Tarukito ordered a retreat. He was the one who called the retreat. So combine forces pulled back, and the Kelhounds dropships were able to make it up to their jump ships. And so they all hook up, and the Cucamulus and the Bifrost from there, jumped to Northwind. And now they're here. Now now we're on Northwind. Oh, also, d- during the conversation, Dan makes reference to it's uh, not every day that you get to meet the prince. And so we're like, oh, the prince is here. Interesting. He's going to meet the prince. They're getting dressed to go meet the prince. Hans Davian is on Northwind. Northwind is just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the soul system where a little place called Earth is. It is knee deep in the chaos march it's kind of wild that uh hans davion is all the way out here i'm sure that they had they took quite a bit of precautions bringing him this like close to the edge yeah yeah that's a good point it is kind of out here so they finish getting dressed and there's a knock on the door and the valet tells them that the prince requests their presence it's time and so we get a little walk and talk They're going down the hall. Quintus tells Dan that Hans brought all of us here when we got the message. Like as soon as we got a message from Vandermeer, because Vandermeer sent a message, we got the message. He rounded us all up. He jumped us out here to meet you. He also says that uh, your mother and Riva will be arriving soon as well. That's Dan's mother and Dan's sister. And it's funny because Dan's like, oh, they didn't have to come. Quintus tells him, don't worry about it. They're not really here to see you. They want to meet Melissa, dude. (laughs) So... We get a Hans's office scene. This is not the usual office. This is a temporary office. It's not quite, we got, well, you know, whitewashed walls contrasted sharply with the wooden pillars. So we're not in New Avalon. Quintus and Daniel walk in and uh, the prince, well, he asked them, may I offer you a drink? And before they respond, he just starts pouring two drinks. <laughs> we see, oh, Melissa is here, of course. And she's wearing a snow fox fur robe. She has this very expensive fur robe. It's cool. Silver gray robe of native snow fox furs. Yeah, Hans pours some drinks. 
Oh, Cat Wilson is in here. He's in his dress uniform, looking very uncomfortable with this whole situation. <laughs> Salome finds this very amusing. She is also here. <laughs> Everyone's in here. Andy and Clovis are here as well. And Andrew Redburn, Captain Andrew Redburn, huh? Right. Oh, because when Dan walks in, they're in the chairs on like their side of the desk. They were talking to Hans, I guess. And so you see them, both of them kind of turn around and we see that Andy's got the captain insignia on his uh, uniform. And you're like, yeah, dude, he made his captain. Remember? Yes, he made it. Oh, Clovis is also in a dress uniform as well. Everyone is in like (laughs) exquisite dress uniforms and the prince gathered them all here. And he tells them that he'll be giving a speech soon of course, honoring the sacrifices of the Kellhounds and those who've fallen in their heroic deeds. Also, he mentions that they're already working on the misinformation campaign regarding the Silver Eagle incident, right? Quintus, he's already spreading rumors about this mysterious Lyran VIP. Don't worry. The machine is working. <laughs> We're going to memory hold this thing. We're going to astroturf it. It's fine. But this is where... Hans tells them that the real reason he gathered them all here today, right now, is because these were the people present when Melissa revealed her engagement to Patrick on his deathbed, right? So also, all of these characters know now, and the prince just wanted to reiterate the need for secrecy, right? It's a matter of national security. Yes, (laughs) A union between the two nations threatens to unite their enemies, right? We've heard this before. This is not the first time someone has hypothesized that it's a potential consequence. Let's be honest. It already has. A plot point of this book is Frederick Steiner taking this information about Melissa traveling across the stars and uh, using it for nefarious deeds. Yeah, he's just right. We've seen the proof in the pudding. (laughs) That was also Mindo Waterly's argument, wasn't it? She basically said the same thing. Yes. Well, interesting. And she also was like, we've got to do something about this. (laughs) So there's two accounts right there. And And they told her no, right? Don't. Like, we can't. Don't do anything about it, right? Not and yet. Not right? yet. Right was the, uh, I believe, kind of the the vague notion. Yeah. Dang, that was all the way back in the prologue, huh? That was yep. a long time ago. Vague notion, not to be confused with Grey Noten. <laughs> I almost forgot about the Comstar stuff. I wonder if we'll see those guys again. <laughs> uh, you know, they're probably not important. So, of course, they're not going to tell. So, Salome, of course as leader of the Kellhounds now, uh, gives her word. She says it's especially because to do otherwise would betray the memory of their fallen comrades. She agrees not to tell anyone about what she heard. And Clovis as well. Clovis also agrees. Yeah, the prince really shouldn't have anything to worry about. What Salome says there really should hammer the point home. Clovis also nods in agreement and says that he won't share this information with anyone, not even anyone in Heimdall, not even his mother, he says, not even my mother shall learn it from me. He glanced down in his boots and added in a tense whisper, and never my father. Interesting. 
Now, when I was reading this scene, I couldn't shake the idea of like Clovis sitting in this room just sweating as they're going over like, (laughs) what happened? Like, how did it get here? And it's like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have stolen that jump ship for money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but it's hard to be mad at the Heimdall people because without them and their sacrifice, delaying things until the Kalhounds could do the things that the Kalhounds did, none of this would have been successful. So here, the end do justify the means. And I feel like, wow, I guess the whole Heimdall thing kind of works, I guess. I also like we have a built-in reason for Clovis not. Aside from the whole Heimdall thing, we did get his rousing speech to the uh, Archon designate as they were fleeing from danger. So we also know that Clovis isn't going to spill the beans anytime soon. Oh yeah, Clovis is cool. He gets pardoned, by the way. The prince pardons him. (laughs) It, it, It says that Clovis and his people have been pardoned for the hijacking. So congratulations to Clovis. He's not getting arrested. <laughs> Captain Redburn has already given me his oath, and uh, he has been uh, <laughs> duly rewarded for his efforts. Poor Andy. You see Andy? He's got the captain's bars, though. He did it. That's not what and, he wanted. No. <laughs> He's not ready for that. <laughs> no. I mean, he is. He is. But also, <laughs> it's been tough. I just wanted to go back to Kittery. That's <laughs> it would have been nice to enjoy the luxury cruise. <laughs> yeah, he didn't get to enjoy that room as much as no. he hoped. He did get some nice yeah. wine at Hans's expense, though. The Kelhounds, of course, will be decorated handsomely. We're talking Order of Davian, Dragon Slayers ribbons. All of the fallen Kelhounds will receive the metal Excalibur, right? We're talking generous decorations. Which is interesting considering, so outside of Battletech, to my knowledge, generally speaking, uh, military medals are reserved for members of said military. And so I, th- I think it's interesting and a cool gesture that uh, the Kelhounds are receiving these honors. That's probably, he says that they're inducted into the Order of Davian. Yeah, that's a good point. He does say that though. I did wonder about that when I was reading. I was like, if you're a mercenary group... And your bread and butter is working in the conflicts of these five great houses in the inner sphere. Then getting like special favor and reward and accolades from one, does that limit your job opportunities with the enemies of that state? My answer to that question would be, it's complicated. (laughs) And I think we'll see examples of what you just said, as well as examples of it actually helping. More on that later, I guess. <laughs> I'm sure it'll come back up in some of these books in the future. Oh, it will. <laughs> but yeah, and I also think it's a reflection of the Kelhound's closeness to both the Lyran Commonwealth, the Federated Sons, um, that they're doing this. Considering what happened and what they did and that closeness to the royal family that the Kells have, I think all of this plays into part for them doing this. I don't think that every mercenary company is going to get medals for things they do. Not only that, but I almost forgot. He tells them that he will have a monument built to them on New Avalon. They're getting a monument. Those who fell during the Styx operation are getting a monument. I wonder what that looks like. Oh man, what moment? Oh, hold on now. 
<laughs> that would be funny. Like, it's like, what what moment would you have memorialized? I'd like to think if you were asking the Kellhounds, it would just be a monument of them sitting around a poker table playing cards. Oh, that'd be tight. Yeah. Or it's just a victor killing a bunch of panthers. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. What if it is like a hound stomping on like, like a, a panther? bunch of panthers and Oh, snakes? we go the symbolic route. That's very funny. I really like that in this next part, Stackpole adds this bit that Hans says. And it really makes Hans come off as the warrior he's portrayed as. Hans says something to the effect of, I know all of this is fine and dandy, but you really couldn't care less about all this when you have fallen comrades. And he knows that nothing will replace their buds, but he does make the offer of, what can I do to at least try? I found this like both touching and like harrowing. I feel like it's a little bit of a curtain pull. We see a little bit behind the fox. Behind the fox. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good bit to get some understanding of it. He ends his whole speech by telling them, yeah, you'll get all that stuff. You guys have been through so much. He asked them, what do you really want? I'm asking you, you know, help me help you. What do you guys need? You tell me, please. Well, Dan cleared his throat and inched forward. I'll speak for myself. What I did was foolish and desperate, but it's now considered brave because of the result. <laughs> when he t he's talking about the Valkyrie suicide charge. Dan is an honest man, if anything. Yeah. He's like, yeah, it was dumb. And then my and then I went spinning around in my chair. I hit the wall <laughs> twice. But he talks he's about gallant. Patrick, about how Patrick knew what he was doing, about how Patrick continued to kill Panthers so that he could save the rest of us. And how Patrick almost certainly knew from the moment that he planned all of this, that he probably wouldn't make it back alive. And so Dan suggests that maybe the prince start a scholarship for mech warriors. That's what he says. Dan thinks about it and he's like, what about a scholarship? Let's pay for some mech warrior school. Man, this is where the waterworks really started for me. <laughs> And then Melissa comes in. Not only will it be so in the Federated Sons, but in the Lyran Commonwealth, too. And you're just like, I'm like, oh, man. Like, a oh, scholarship geez, program for <laughs> mech warriors. Yeah, when Dan says this, also, you see Kat's hand come down on his shoulder. I agree with Captain Allard, your highness. Yeah. And Hans is like, it shall be done. It's this, yeah, it is beautiful. And so, yeah, basically, yeah, this... I mean, this is the last we see of the Kellhounds in this book. It ends with uh, Dan securing a scholarship for... I bet you guys didn't see that coming. You know, <laughs> who on there... Who, who thought that Dan would establish a scholarship by the end of this book? Not me. How, you know, how noble. <laughs> I thought that was cool. I was, I was like, oh, what is he going to ask for? A scholarship program. I thought that was so nice. What a stand-up guy. I liked his reasoning. Dan was really searching his heart for what Patrick would have wanted whether he nailed that or not i feel like they did a good job of portraying that's what dan believed that patrick would have wanted and that's why it's moving yeah he's trying to do right by his bud because inevitably as canaan pointed out or to me earlier today these books often enough are about fellowship yeah and oh and that's it elite especially this is the last numbered chapter, right? The next section is the epilogue. And this is the end of the Kellhound's story arc. 
in this book. This is functionally the uh, end of the story. This meeting with Hans on Northwind with all the Kellhounds and Melissa. And okay. It's bittersweet. Yeah, and it's been such a ride to get here with them. From Pacifica to Northwind. We've gotten such an insight into the Kellhounds. And now this meeting really sunk in how much losing Patrick was to this group. You could feel it in the dying scene, but when they're all sitting there talking about the scholarship, as you said, Brent, you feel that camaraderie behind it where they're just tr- doing whatever they can to match what he would have wanted. Hey, what's up with that with Clovis talking about his father? Did you guys notice that? What do you think about I that? I did. You know, I don't think it'll come up again. <laughs> I think now, reaching the end of the numbered chapters in this book, we can just make an assumption that if Stackpole has it in the book, it's coming back up. But I will say, when I was reading it, the only thing I wished for in this chapter was when Dan and Quintus are talking, getting dressed. They didn't mention anything about Justin. Yeah. And I would have loved to see, even if it was just a very short, like two sentences on it, just asking the question to really feel that mood. I hear you on this, but I also feel like it's such, even though it is common ground for the two of those two that feels like such the wrong place and time to have that discussion it would be hard to really i mean i don't even think these guys have really had time to unpack everything going on you know so but i agree it i do lament that we don't get anything i would have loved to see it right when dan finds out his mom and sister are there And if he would have thrown out a line like, and what about Justin? Even though he knows he couldn't be here. And then Quintus could say either nothing about it, not even follow it up. Just just something to tie that in. Oh, what if he was like, if Dan asked any word on Justin and Quintus would be like, we lost contact with him a week ago. He must have went underground (laughs) because or something like that. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, that, that was the only thing. However, just because Quintus and Dan didn't talk about Justin... Doesn't mean that we can't. That's right. And we'll have to see what is going on with Justin in the epilogue. Epilogue. Xi'an. Xi'an Commonality. Capellan Confederation. 10th of June, 3027. Interesting. This is Xi'an. This is the capital, Capellan Confederation. Well, uh, Dorothy's a long way from home. Yes. And so, this opens with a scene of Justin getting dressed for a meeting. Except, it's not his father helping him get dressed. It's servants. And it's cool. He's got this full-length silken coat, gold cloth, black tigers... They're tucking his pants into his slippers type of a situation. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and Sen Shang is here as well in the room. He's smiling. He thinks this is hilarious. And after they finish getting Justin dressed, he tells Justin to follow him. And Justin tells him that he could have said that on Solaris. But <laughs> Sen Shang tells him that I do as I'm told. <laughs> I did love how that played out where... <laughs> It's like they drug him, they took him to Capellan space, and he's just like, I, I happily would have come. Like, <laughs> none of this was yeah. necessary. Yeah. 
But he could have said no, right? And the Capellans couldn't have had that. And then you um, drug him and take him. <laughs> right, but then they're going to be on edge. It, the drugging part is harder. True. See, you're not thinking like a Capellan. That's true. See, it's it's because it's our first chapter in Capellan's face. That's right. <laughs> Give me a few more. I'll be right at home, I'm sure. So they go walking. They're clearly in some kind of ornate palace. We're talking carpeted hallways, stone lanterns, teak lattice work. It's very ornate. Oh, also, Justin feels awful, by the way. He isn't sure. He thinks that it has a lot to do with his narcotic hangover. He's clearly just getting over some pretty powerful drugs. And also, it feels like, I think he says jump residue, or that he can tell that he's been through hyperspace jumps because it affects you, and especially if you're attuned to i bet he can he can tell he can he he thinks oh i i feel like i've been through several jumps actually how far have they taken me he doesn't know that's an interesting thing right we know he's on Sion, but apparently he doesn't he doesn't he's doing what he should be in this situation and trying to figure it all out he doesn't know where they're going he's just following sen shang and he takes Justin to this large room. It's this very large room. It's very long, high ceiling, soft red lighting, very soft lighting. There's an upper section with balconies. It reminds Justin of a viewing gallery, I believe. It's this large room. And then down there at the end, there is a mahogany throne and upon it are carven symbols of Capellan mythology. Justin recognizes them. I like, he says, the throne, quite literally, is backed by the universe. It's all these cool mythological symbols and whatnot. This very ornate throne, seated there, with his hands clasped before him, was Maximilian Lau. It's the Chancellor. Who? And with that... Another great house leader, that which is four in this book, five if you include Comstar. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, that's a sixth hidden great house. Stackpole was trying to catch them that's all. A secret great house that will help us later. So it's the Chancellor, dude. It's Maximilian Liao, and he's in all black. Everything, by the way, on this huge throne, tall, slender frame, and. He greets Justin, Xiao, Justin Xiang, waves him forward. He's got these thin wisps of a mustache. Don't forget that. Thin wisps of a mustache trailing down beside his mouth. All right? We got a real big trouble in Little China situation, is what you're saying. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) And he tells Justin that he has kindled pride in his heart with his victories. He's very proud of him. And, oh, this is cool. Then he does, he hands this sealed document. To Justin, he's like, check this out. He says that the contents should please you. And Justin opens it up, unrolled the paper, quickly scanned the lettering. I don't understand. And Liao explains, and we learn that this is a document of Capellan citizenship. And if you know, you have to earn citizenship in the Confederation, right? It's a big deal. It's a, right, that's a big part of their culture is like citizenship through service It's like a Starship Troopers type of a situation. (laughs) Justin, of course, is deeply honored. He doesn't know what to say. I don't know what to say. But 
he tells the chancellor that he would be honored to battle in the games here, right? He assumes that they that he needs a a mech warrior, a gladiator. But Maximilian Liao corrects Justin. He reminds him that unlike other rulers, he sees with a clear vision. They all say this, by yeah. the way. <laughs> that and they all keep their secret services under control. Yeah. <laughs> However, yeah, the chancellor tells Justin that he feels like it would be a needless risk to put him in the arena because he wants his mind. Because Justin knows how Davian thinks, right? He knows how Quintus thinks. No amount of intelligence budget or spies could be as useful as Justin could potentially be, right? He even mentions the trial. He tells Justin that he watched the trial with outrage. He says that he even considered issuing an official denial, but he knew that wouldn't help. It would just strengthen the case. If you get a letter that's like, the chancellor of the Capellan Confederation says that this man is definitely not a spy. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he's like, that's like, it doesn't work. <laughs> but also, Lopan here is laying it on a little thick, though, right? Yes. Yeah. Especially with what we're going to learn here in a few minutes. This is, you're right. He's selling it so hard. And Justin, of course, is very honored. And he asks the chancellor what he would have him do. And Liao explains that, one, he has recalled Shang to serve here as an analyst. And two, he wants Justin to work with him. He's, pu he's literally putting a team together. <laughs> and he's his guy. I want you, I want you guys to work together and you can be my guys. And Justin asks the chancellor, well, how do you know you can trust me? And the chancellor tells him that, well, he says, Justin, I can read you like a book. I know you won't betray your family to harm, but in the work of breaking Hans Davian, I know you're good for it. Justin agrees. Yeah, he does. He accepts his offer. Seems risky. Yeah, it seems risky. That's what I thought. I said, this is pretty dicey. What, uh, saying no to Chancellor Maximilian Liao in his throne room? Well, now that you say it that way. <laughs> the Chancellor is very pleased to hear this. And he says, excellent. And he claps his hands and a wall panel slides up near them. And the Chancellor tells Justin, come on, let's celebrate. Check it out. There's a little party room in here. And so the Max Liao goes in and Justin goes in behind him. Yeah, Justin freezes in the doorway and we see there's a man here in a green uniform and Max Liao sees that Justin is a uh, reticent and he asks him, oh, I thought you knew our other guest. And Justin says, oh, uh, we've met. And the camera pans over, right? And we see that Michael Hasek Davian is sitting at the table. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Here? Oh, boy. I don't know. It's pretty... I believe it. I mean, I'm like, I'm kind of like, yeah. This is outrageous. This is outrageous. <laughs> Stackpole really wanted to say here, don't worry, I got another book coming. Yeah, remember Michael Hasek Davian? I love how he's let chapters go by without mentioning. Mm -hmm. The last time we even got a hint of Michael Hasek Davion is from his goon deliberately being allowed to listen in on Hans and Quintus's discussion. Yes. It's been some time. It has been. But this was also the point when 
Maximilian Liao sitting there going like, the trial was outrageous. And then it's like, oh, by the way, you know the guy that brought you up on charges and orchestrated the whole yeah. thing? He's hanging out with me now. It does sour the deal a little bit, right? Yeah. Yep. But also, this whole thing's interesting, right? I don't know about you guys, but at this point in the road, it makes you wonder, is this all one giant op run by Quintus to, like, get Justin in deep cover so he can be here to, like, sniff out the likes of Michael Hasek Davion and, in a way, get his revenge? Or is this all just Justin doing what we saw, which is being real angry and trying to get back at Hans Davion and coming all the way around to here to learning that, uh, well, it actually all was a setup. That was the question I immediately asked as I read it, was... Does this change Justin's mentality? Does he see this? And maybe not right away, but I'm sure in the journey we'll be going on with him. Does that change the blame to him? Where was this all originated here? And was it the Capellans that took my life away from me and not necessarily Hans Davian? Yeah. That's a very good point you bring up there. It could also be option three. (laughs) Which door is it, though? Which is a beautiful last couple lines here from Stackpole. Really set up the next book. This is what makes the book for me. Like, hands down. I I feel like the first Justin ending's kind of, well, I mean, it gets us here. But I mean, like, Killing Caped, it's kind of... In a way, almost anticlimactic, as I believe it's supposed to be. And then we have the Kellhounds ending, which is good, but it's not, it doesn't feel like a proper ending. This is the thing that really brings home the ham. It really feels like Stackpole's hitting you with a combo here, where it's like, okay, you get the Capet fight, and then it's over. And you're like, well, what was that all for, though? Yes. And then he hits you with the Kellhounds ending. You're like, maybe this is supposed to be about the Kellhounds. And Justin is more of a secondary arc. And then he hits you with the epilogue. And you're like, oh, nope, we're right back into this is just as important. So I agree completely with you that it almost feels like a setup to get you here and be unsuspecting of it. Yeah, it turns out it was just a job offer. <laughs> That's what the whole kidnapping stuff was all about. It's job offer. Capellans have strange ways. But yeah, maybe he is just, this is just, it's gotten completely out of hand. Justin is lost. He went looking for trouble, and uh, he found it. More than his share, it sounds. Liao lifted a glass of plum wine. Let us drink, then, to the one end on which we can all agree, to the destruction of Hans Davian, his line, and his house. That's the end. Yeah, and... If you take both the last chapter and the epilogue and you see how much they parallel between Justin's story and Dan's story, they both yeah. start getting dressed. Yeah. They both end up meeting a leader of a state. They're both taken onto a new path. And to me, that seems like what Stackpole is setting up is to square these two off. You've caught it. I mean... It, Stackpole has has had this helical parallel storytelling the whole way through this, right? And you're right, that is just another parallel. And we'll have to find out if that is the direction that we're heading in when we start the next book. 
Warrior Riposte. This was another episode of Of Mechs and Men. I am Kanan Hill, joined, as usual, by my two good friends, Brent and Aaron. We would like to thank the author, Michael A. Stackpole, as well as all the other writers and artists who work so hard to keep Battletech alive. We would like to thank Catalyst Game Labs for being such generous stewards of the property. We have an email, advice at heat.management. If you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, please advice at heat.management. We are also on social media, Twitter, Instagram, at of mechs and men, one word. You can also find us on the Valhalla Club Discord. It's a good way. We're we're usually in there lounging around in our booth. So uh come hang out. Some of the uh, memes made by Code Travis amongst other uh, members of the Valhalla Club community. Enjoy the memes. If you'd like to leave a review on your favorite podcast app, please. That's great. We love them. We love reading them. Every little bit helps. For example, we received a review just the other day from Tengu077. Subject, a through armor critical to the fusion reactor. Tengu says, a great podcast of lively discussion on the books of the Battletech universe. As a fan of the franchise for 30 plus years, it's refreshing to hear people as excited as I am discuss the lore and world building in Battletech. The hosts do a great job on chapter breakdowns of the books they discuss and make the listener feel as they are part of the weekly book club meeting. I'm especially appreciative of the great audio quality with the recordings. Everyone is easy to hear at the same volume. I haven't experienced any quiet mic issues from the participants. I hope this group keeps up the great work and look forward to hearing them tackling books such as Wolves on the Border and Wolfpack. Well, thank you, Tengu. Yes, thank you, Tengu. We are very much excited to cover books such as Wolves on the Border and Wolfpack. Oh, yes. Both Kanan and Brent have told me, <laughs> just wait. One day we're going to get to Wolves on the Border and you're going to love it. So I'm very excited. We were just talking about it today, I think. Brent, where were we talking Literally about today. Wolves on the Border? Literally today. <laughs> That's true. But yes. Thank, thank you, you very Tengu. much. Yes, thank you, Tengu. 077. We will return for The Remembrance of Warrior On Guard by Michael A. Stackpole. Until then. Until next time. Say la. Say la.